0: Okay, so John, first John chapter five. This is the, uh, the last chapter in this little book. Um, and I don't think we'd have to go through all the details uh, that we've been through, although um, I, I usually say that and then we usually go through the details anyway. So just as a reminder, John, uh, the very old man, the last things that he's going to impart to this world uh, before going uh, to be with his best friend. Uh, in eternity, and uh, his message over and over and over is two things in, in the book of First John. Be obedient and love. Uh, that's what he just keeps coming back to. Uh, and as an old, as an old man, he, just, he doesn't feel the need to pull any punches because you're going to be in heaven soon. What, what does he care? he got no one, no one to impress, nothing to prove. He's just going to say it like it is, and he just keeps coming back to those two things. Um, you've you got to be obedient and you've got to love. Uh, and so that's kind of how he's going to wrap this thing up in, uh, in, in chapter 5. So uh, let's go through this. Uh, 1 John 5, uh, verses 1 and 2 and 3. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born, of, uh, is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God, to obey his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. Let me just finish uh, four and five. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, When he uses that word believes, and especially starting in verse one, he says, everyone who believes believes. That Jesus is the Christ, is born of God. He, he wants to assure us in chapter 5 um, of, of eternal life. So I want, I want to make sure you know that you have eternal life. And, and he says that later in, chapter, in verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, uh, so that you may know... That you have eternal life. And so he he starts this and said, Look, uh, this this is this is my purpose for this section. I want you to know that you have eternal life. And 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 you know that you're born of God when you believe that Jesus is the Christ. And he, he, co- he goes back, and we've talked about it before. He goes back to it's not just Jesus is Jesus. Um and, and and Jesus is special what he's driving the point he's driving home is, is we have to believe that Jesus is the Messiah and we talked about this in weeks past and the idea of the Messiah is that he is fully God and fully human this is what sets Jesus apart from all other um, re- religious people if you could use that term this is what sets Jesus apart uh, as unique the only begotten of God um, that he is the Messiah. And the understanding of the Messiah is that he is fully God and fully human. Um, and he's saying everyone who believes that, and not just believes that in their head, but relies on that in their life. And when what it means to rely on the knowledge and the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, fully God and fully human, to rely on that means I'm staking my whole hope, of eternity on that. And I'm living my life in line with that. That, that, that all my life is, 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 is built on the foundation that he is the Messiah, fully God and fully human and deserves complete and full allegiance. And he says, everyone who, who, who believes in that way, that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the father loves his child as well. Here's what he's saying. If we say that we believe that, and we say that we love the father says everyone who loves a father loves his what? His child as well. So when he says everyone who loves the father, God loves his child as well. He's not necessarily just saying loves Jesus as well. He's saying loves the kids of the father. He, he, so he's making the point that look, if you say you love God, you got to love all his kids. And if you've ever had more than one, if you have more than one child, you know how disconcerting and heartbreaking it is when your two children or when two of your children are just at odds and at each other's throat and just don't get along. It's like, well, well hold on. We're like, we're family. Why would you? And so John is, is saying, you love the father? Great, love the son. And don't just love the son, but love all the kids. You know, we cannot separate these two things, the love of the father and love for people. Um, Verse two, this is how we know that We love the children of God by loving God and carrying out his commands. So he's saying the way, uh, the the best way to love God and to carry out the commands, be obedient to the commands of God, is to love his children. That's what he's saying. The best way we show love to God, demonstrate that we love God, and, and demonstrate that we're obeying his commands is to love the children of God, each other. This goes back to Jesus' two great commands, right? Well, the greatest command will love God and love people. And John is saying that the best way you demonstrate that you truly do love God is not by reading your Bible and not by memorizing it, and not by singing songs, and not by it's by loving God's kids. Um, I was reading one commentator and he said this, that a Christian who does not love God or obey God is of little value to the body of Christ. And is a drag on the spiritual progress of the church. If we're not loving God and obeying God, we're not showing love to, to, to the children of God. And if we're not loving God and obeying God and showing love to his children, we're of little use to the body of Christ. Because if that's where we are, all we're doing is coming for ourselves, sitting, soaking, and leaving. And 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 this commentator was making the point that it's a it's a, it's a drag on the spiritual progress. How can the church progress uh, 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 progress spiritually if the people in the church simply come and okay, I got that. That's for me. Okay, that one's for me. Okay, that one's for me, and walk out. No service to the people of the church. No involvement, investment. And he's saying, look, you want to show love to God? Great. Love the people, and if you love them, what do we know? You got to serve them. Uh, the best thing that the child can do for God, um, is to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, and vice versa. Um, it, it's it's like. You know, if you're married and you have kids, what's the best thing in a marriage relationship? What's the best thing a father can do for his children? Love his wife. The best thing a father can do for his kids is to love his wife. Um, and 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 like when when that love is right, the kids will be blessed. And so and so, John's kind of saying, "Look, this this is." Both sides of the same coin. The best thing we can do for each other is to love God. And the best way we show our love for God is by loving each other. That's what he's saying. Um, And in verse 3, he says, this is love for God, to obey his commands. And then he adds this statement, and his commands are not burdensome. Um, That's a really challenging statement from the way most people feel about obedience. And the younger you are, the more difficult it seems to obey God. He sa- John says, now I want you to understand something. His commands are not burdensome. Now, understand, this is the John that has walked with Jesus through all of his public ministry, that has seen every apostle, except for Judas, martyred for his faith because of obedience. And you're say his commands aren't burdensome? <clears> hmm. <throat> You you've been boiled, <clears throat> sequestered on a on a on a on a uh, uh, in 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 prison on Patmos because of your obedience, and you are going to say his commands aren't burdensome. I mean, he, this, John has a unique perspective from which to speak, and what he's saying is understand his commands. They're not; they might be costly. I am not saying they're not costly but they're not burdensome. How are they not burdensome? Well, let me tell you, they're not burdensome, one, because they're good. It's good. And the more we understand that the commands of God are inherently good and for our benefit, it's not burdensome. Now, they are burdensome as it was in the garden for Eve when she didn't realize that the commands of God, here's two trees, don't eat from them, when she didn't realize how good that command was, when she didn't re- believe that his commands are good and for her benefit, what did she do? Disobeyed. She disobeyed, disobeyed. Because she wasn't convinced that his commands were good or for her benefit, she thought, you know what, you're, maybe God is holding out on me. Maybe I can get more if I do, if I do what he if I if I do contrary to what he said. And so, when we understand. No, his commands, even if you don't understand them, his, I know his commands are good and for my benefit. They're not a burden anymore. They're also not a burden when, because, Jeremiah says, that we're given a new heart. Where God doesn't write his law on, the, on stone tablets anymore, now he writes them on our heart. Uh, and when he writes them on our heart, he gives us the desire to obey. And so as we grow in him, we, so does our desire to obey him. And when I have the desire to obey God, it's not burdensome. If I don't have the desire to obey him, it's absolutely burdensome, right? Right? I mean, all, all you got to do is go into any public school system. And you'll understand, I don't have the desire to obey my teacher, and school is a burden. I mean, they just kids just live in defiance, it's the same way in our spiritual lives. When I have the desire to obey, it's not, it's not a problem. And they're not, my commands, John says, God's commands are not burdensome. What was burdensome were all the religious rules that they were growing up with. And what is still burdensome is all the religious rules that, that, uh, that, that we've uh, believed as well. Now, you go back to Matthew eleven thirty, 30, and what does Jesus say? Are any of you weary and heavy burdened? Come to me, I'm going to give you rest. Because my yoke is light. My burden is easy. My commands are not burdensome. Right? By the way, when Jesus said, my yoke is you know, light and easy, um, do you know what he was talking about? Like a yoke of an ox? That's so that's one understanding, that it was the, the yoke of an ox that used to, you know, to do work. But the other understanding of this is that when, when a rabbi taught... His teachings were called his yoke. And so he says, if you're weary and heavy burdened, because you've accepted the yoke of all these other rabbis, all these rules and regulations, my yoke is easy. Because what was his yoke? Love God. Two things. We've got love, love, love people. It's an easy yoke. And so John is saying, look, his commands are not burdens. So don't approach this. Don't approach the scripture. Don't approach the, the laws of God, the word of God, the directions of God, the commands of God, as if, oh, my gosh, I hope I can do this. It's for your benefit as you grow in him and remain in him, as John talks about. The desire grows to obey him. Uh, and, and, and it's really not heavy. I'm going to show, I'm going to be in right relationship with you because I'm I'm loving the Father. And I'm going to be in right relationship with the Father because I'm loving you. That's pretty simple. So so they're not burdensome. For everyone, verse 4, born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. He's saying, Look, I'm going to tell you how to become victorious. And John would know because he's about 93 years old. He said, I'm going to tell you the secret to being victorious. Your victory in this world, and he's talking about victory over the evil one, victory over sin, death, and destruction. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Victory in this world is not by what you do. It's simply by maintaining your faith. That's what he says. He says, what's overcome the world? It's our faith. And, and, And this idea of consistent faith. We talked a couple of weeks ago that when Jesus, when John says to uh, this issue of obedience, is to make daily, constant decisions that keep you um, connected to God. That's the, he said. That's that's the kind of faith that that, that makes you victorious. These daily, moment by moment decisions that keep you connected to the Father. In that faith is your victory. It's not about what you do and don't do. When that is in place that constant faith, the behavior will take care of itself. Verse 6, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. Uh, When he talks about water and blood, there's a bunch of different ideas about what John had in mind about the water and the blood. A bunch of different ones. Um, and I'm not going to detail them all. I'm just going to cut to the chase. The best thing that we can understand about what he means by water and blood is the baptism and crucifixion of Christ. Um, he came by water and blood. He came by water in the, ba- the baptism waters where the Spirit of God descended in the form of a dove where God spoke. This is you know, my son whom I will please. You know. uh, and that was the inauguration of his public ministry. And by blood, the crucifixion, which was the close of his public ministry, and he came to us fully God, fully human, through the waters of baptism and in crucifixion um and so that, that there's all kinds of other stuff out there if you if you research this you'll you, you just do a simple Google search what do you mean by water and blood you're going to get all kinds of different uh ideas um is, some would say that water is the, the water of uh, natural birth. Uh, some would say, well, water and blood, that was, it's, he's indicating, you know, when the spear went through Jesus and water and blood poured out and all this other stuff. And there, there may be some validity in some of those things, though I think I could poke a hole in every one of them, except for this one, this baptism and crucifixion. And so he's, he's saying this, this is the one who came in the baptism and crucifixion at the beginning of the public ministry. This is the Jesus the Christ. And he didn't come just, but he didn't come just to inaugurate. He came to finish, not by water only, but by water and blood. Like, like, he didn't come just to start this thing. He came to close it out in the crucifixion. Now, this is an interesting little section right here, verses seven and eight. For who testifies? Because the Spirit is the true. Oh, sorry. And it is, yeah. Uh, for for there are three that testify. Verse seven: the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. Now, that's what my NIV says. Do any of you have another version that says something different? You might have a footnote. The King James Version says this. Uh, these three testify in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And there are three that testify on earth. Um, that's what my footnote says. Yeah, yeah. And, and so... And so when it talks about these three in heaven, Father, Word, Holy Spirit, that's in the the, the King James Version. That's not in the original. And some would say that that is proof of the Trinity, because it says Father, Word, Spirit. And they would say that's explicit proof that the Trinity is in Scripture. And these three are one, one God, three persons, and there are three that testify on earth. Um... That's in the King James Version. It's not in, probably in the versions we have here as text. Here's why. That little phrase there, they testify in heaven, Father, Word, Holy Spirit, these three are one, and they testify on earth. That little phrase didn't show up in any manuscripts until the 14th and 16th century. Okay, so... They're, 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 they're in none of the earliest manuscripts, uh, and, and it's, they, they, pro, they were not part of the original letter that John wrote. Here's how they came to be. There was a, a, a man named Erasmus who produced the best and accurate version of the Bible in ancient Greek, and he used the manuscripts that were on hand and produced a, the New Testament in the ancient Greek language without verse eight, without, without this that section in there. And, um, and some people got pretty upset at him. Uh, and so he said this, he said, look, I'll tell you what, if you show me a manuscript that has that in it, I will include it in this ver- my version of this, this ancient Greek language, New Testament. A few days go by, someone knocks on a door, says, Hey, Erasmus, look what I found. And they gave him a manuscript that had this written in it. Erasmus knew that it was, someone just went to their basement and lit a candle and wrote it out. He knew it was bogus. But in order for him to save face, because he said, show me a manuscript. So he said, fine, whatever. So he wrote it in to his manuscript. That manuscript is the version that King Jimmy used in and when he told everybody to come up with, with you know the version that we have as a King James Bible, and so it was written in as part of the text because it was an Erasmus's version written in ancient Greek that he was kind of twisted his arm to put it in there. It shouldn't be in there as part. It was what it probably was in the first century. There was a lot of discussion um, about the Trinity. How do we understand what is clear in scripture? That hero is re- your God is one, but God has revealed himself in the Father, Son, and the Spirit. How do we come up with that understanding? And there was a lot of discussion about where that is in scripture, how that is, how do we develop that? Let's come, let's come up with a term that would, that would encapsulate that. They came up with the term Trinity. And it's likely that there was simply just a scribe who thought, here is my chance to make a footnote that indicates this Trinitarian understanding, this Trinitarian doctrine. And it was probably just a footnote somewhere that as it was transcribed and transcribed just became part of the document where it ended up in Erasmus's, you know, on his desk and he wrote it in. So, um, but as true as we have to the text, um, for there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these are in agreement. There, there's, there's, there's nothing in the original text about the Father, the Word, and the Spirit, or anything like that. Um, not that that takes away or adds anything to it. What's there is clear, regardless of that little section's in there or not. Um, but if you're doing a little bit of research and you see this little addition there, you want to know how the, the addition of part of verse 7 and verse 8, that's where it comes from. Uh, verse 9, we accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it's the testimony of God, which he has given about his son. He's saying, look, if you believe what other people say in a court of law, that's great. Why would you believe what a human says and not what God says? God has more authority. That's all he's saying. So you believe a human's testimony, you ought to believe God's testimony. Anyone who believes in the son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar. Because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his son. What's the testimony that God's given about his son? He's the Messiah. He's the Messiah. Yeah, he, he is the unique one. And anybody who chooses not to believe has, and John doesn't pull bunches, he says it's real simple. If you choose not to believe what God has said about his son, you're calling God a liar. Good luck with that. And and, he, and it's interesting what he says. Anyone who does not believe, for John, the issue of belief was a choice. It wasn't I'm trying to believe I just can't. It wasn't I, I'm I'm working on belief. It wasn't I, I just need a couple more, you know, reasons to believe. Which is a great book, by the way. It it, it, it just it, he he says you either believe you choose to believe or you choose not to. That's it. Anyone who does not believe, God uh, has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony God's given about his son. God's greatest revelation of God is the son. And John says, you're either going to choose to believe it or not. It's interesting when we go back to... um, The Gospel of John. Go back to the Gospel of John. And um, and, uh, let me see here. In, In the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 37. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. Like, like, I think I might talk about this a little bit on Sunday, so act like it's brand new information when you hear it. Or no, you can be like, yeah, I knew that. He's preaching old stuff, man. <laughs> Even after, like, every, he had given them every irrefutable proof of his power and authority and divinity, and yet they would not believe. Here, here's how this works, and this is something we've got to understand. They did not believe, so now they could not believe. This is a principle that goes all the way back to the Old Testament. That when we choose to harden our heart and say no to God, God allows our heart to be hardened. So we cannot say yes to him. If we choose to say no over and over, God will simply ratify and strengthen that which we choose. Please understand this. Exodus 8.15 and 8.32. Pharaoh hardened his heart. It was his choice. When they were suffering over the plagues, he said, okay, I'll believe your are God. He's, and then when the plagues relented, he hardened his heart. Exodus 9 12 and 10 20. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God simply ratifies the heart that we choose. And if it, now, he is willing that all who choose to come to him will come. He's not one that anyone should perish, but all should come to eternal life. If you choose it, it's yours. But there's much to say in Scripture. The prophet Isaiah. He's blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts so they can either see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn or else I would heal them. What he's saying is they chose to blind their eyes so I made their eyes blind. They chose to deaden their hearts so I, I deaden their hearts. If they would have come back, I'd have taken them. But I simply am ratifying the heart that they've chosen. And we got to be very careful to keep hearts pliable, repentive, and receptive to the leading of the Spirit. Because once you tell God no the first time, it gets easier to tell Him no the second time. Right? Unless we come under conviction and say, Father, I'm sorry. Uh, and so it, it, it's, it, it's a principle all through Scripture. Um, and we have... I, the, the warning for us is... Keep a pliable heart, because if you tell God no long enough, it'll—you you might not be able to tell him yes. I mean, it, 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 every one of us knows if we live in disobedience to God year after year after year in any area of our life, it gets real hard in that area to say yes. Do you want an example? Huh. Like, 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 if if a Christian lives. Year after year after year in disobedience of the tithe. Just because they've been in church for 70 years doesn't mean they all of a sudden start tithing. they have hardened their hearts to that command. And it's very easy to not do it. Right? And, And this is true for any principle, any command of God. The longer we live... In rejection of obedience to that command, the easier it is to live in objection, or in disobedience to that command. Whatever, I choose use because it's so it's so common in most churches, not ours, but you know most churches. I can say the opposite is true too. Absolutely, Craig. Your heart is like that, but if you slowly start, because that's what we did. We said absolutely you know you tithe and then it's like okay, look, fifty bucks, and every year we're going to arrange it by fifty bucks. That's and mm-hmm. the more we did it. The softer our right, because that's what God does. He yeah. ratifies your heart. Uh, right. And so a heart that begins to get soft, God ratifies that. So it gets softer and softer and softer, right? Mm-hmm. That's exactly what you're saying. Easier and easier and easier. That's exactly how it works. It's exactly how it works. Yeah. So, so the point is, just say yes <laughs> the first time. And if you said no every other time, say yes one time. Because then that, yeah, he ratifies what our heart is. Um, and this is the testimony God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Verse 12. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. Pretty simple. Verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Um, he's saying this this is the purpose of this. I want you to know that your life is eternal, eternally secure. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, verse 14, that if we ask anything, according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. Now, I remember being young in high school, junior high in high school, and looking at this verse thinking, well, this is an easy way to get what I want, <laughs> Right? Uh, ask anything according to my will, he hears me and only hears us because I'll have what I want and I'm convinced that God wants me to have, you know, whatever. Um, here's, Here's how I would understand these two verses. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. So, one, we can approach God with incredible confidence. Not as meek, you know, Bad children that hope God, you know, at least throws me some crumbs. Like we can have incredible confidence in approaching God. And this is the confidence that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we'll have what we've asked of him. Here's God wants us to ask him for all things. That he wants us to approach his throne with confidence and make requests. Why? Because it shows that we believe he's a generous giver. Have have you ever had a relationship with him and you're like, well, I'm not going to ask him for anything. I know what the answer is going to be. Right? I'm not going to bring it up. I brought it before and it gets me nowhere. What's the point? Right? And, And so in a relationship like that, you just quit asking. And so God's saying, look, I, I want you to ask me any because I, I, I want you to prove to me that you really believe that I'm a generous giver. If we don't ask God for anything, it shows that we don't believe he's, he's generous and good and giving and loving or anything. And so it says, I, I want one because I want you to I want you to prove to me that you believe I'm a generous giver. And he says, ask anything. Now, let's let's not fool ourselves into thinking that just because he says you can ask anything means that he will grant everything. Those two things don't, don't drive. Just because we can ask anything does not mean that God's going to grant everything. Um, it just means that, as, as Paul has said, we should pray about everything. So, so have confidence, pray about everything, and show that you believe I'm a generous giver. But the caveat to this is according to his will, right? That's, that's, that's the last asterisk. And one of the things that John is driving home, the point he's driving home, is that we who pray, approach God's throne with confidence, because we know that he's a generous giver and we're praying about all things, we'll pray because we have discerned his will through his word, and we're praying it into action. we we've, we've just. I know this is the will of God because I because I'm I'm in tune with His heart through His Word, and He's invited me to participate with Him, and that's the other part of this whole prayer thing. God has given us the opportunity to work with Him and call His Word into action. Second Corinthians six one. Corinthians six one says this. Let me read it for you. Um that might not be it. I might have to find it. Oh no, no. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. Um there's another verse that I haven't dug on it. Well, let me just tell you this. He's invited us to participate with him in what he's doing. Uh, and so, when we understand His word and understand His will, He's invited us. I want you to be a partner with me in this. Uh, and that's why He says, "Pray about all this stuff according to My will." You pray it into act, you prayed into action. Now, God can do God will do whatever He wants to do with or without us. But how joyful it is to be get, to get to be the ones who participate in His work in the world, right? And to see prayers that are prayed according to His will word. Come to fruition. It's awesome. Uh, verse 16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death. This is a really weird passage right here. Okay. Really weird. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those uh, uh, to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin. And there is a sin that does not lead to death. What in the world? Yeah. The old man coming out. This is really weird. Yeah, at this point, you might want to say, you know what, John? You can go take a nap, come back, get your head straight, Let's revisit this. Um, and I, I'm just going to tell you that I cannot explain it. All I can do is say, this is what I see in Scripture. You can think about it however you want. I don't think he's talking about sin that leads to death in the spiritual sense. Because he says, if anyone sees his brother, so he's talking about someone who is in Christ. And if you're in Christ, there's not a sin that leads to eternal separation from God in hell. So he's not not talking about, I, I don't, based on what he said, he's talking about his brother. He's talking about those who are secured in Christ. And if you're secured in Christ, what sin can you commit if you are in Christ that will lead to eternal death? Blasphemy? None. If you're in Christ, you're not going to blaspheme. And, and so right off the bat, it challenges, what is he talking about? If he's talking about brother, brothers and sisters who are in Christ, Commit a sin that does not lead to death. He should pray, and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. What sin leads to death? Did Paul at one point talk about the sin of rejecting the Holy Spirit as the? Well, they wouldn't be in Christ if they rejected the Holy Spirit. Exactly. So, what's he talking about? Go to First Corinthians twenty-seven. It's a really weird verse better be careful every time oh holy moly not 27 um hold on i know it does <laughs> that's the it's the it's the verse 27 um uh 10 first corinthians 10 is that what it is let me look Um. No. What's Eleven twenty-seven to thirty. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah, for prayer and worship. Yep. What are we yep. First Corinthians eleven. Thank you, Richard. Okay, I gotta uh, First Corinthians eleven. Tw- starting in verse twenty-seven. Watch this. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the church, I'm talking about communion eats of the bread and drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment upon himself, that is why, verse 30, "Many young among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. It means dead. We are judged, verse 32, by the Lord. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. Apparently, there is a sin in this world that leads to physical death. I mean, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, you've you've treated communion... The symbol of the body and the blood of the Lord was such contempt. Some of you are sick physically because of it. Some of you are weak because of it. And some of your member have died. Apparently, there is sin where God says, you know what? It's better for you and for others if I just take you home right now. Is that tough? Yeah. Um. He's saying he's saying that there's, there's a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. He, he he's saying that there are sometimes that 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 God is is judging a person. Um, not condemning judgment, but corrective judgment. And he, it, what Paul is saying, what John is saying here, and, and Paul intimates it in 1 Corinthians, that, that there is sin that God judges against the Christ follower in order to correct them. And what John is saying here is don't pray about that. You let God correct them. Don't pray that God that that that, that, that is relieved from them. Pray that there's repentance and that God's judgment of them leads them to repentance. That's what that's the point he's making. Because apparently, if we pray for recovery and not repentance, they continue to live in it. And it can lead to death. Now, I am not at all going to say, I'm not going to stake my salvation on, on that, is, is, in, in that understanding. But as far as I see from Scripture, that's how I understand it biblically. And I can't explain it. I don't know how to explain what Paul's saying to the church in Corinth that you've had such contempt for the body and blood of Christ that you're sick and ill and some of you have died? Apparently, God said, you know what? You're so unrepentant that it's better for you if I just take you home and relieve you of the misery you have on earth and the misery you're causing everybody else. So let me just bring you home. You'll be happy. I don't know how that feels to you. And he's certainly not saying that all sickness is, you know, because someone is, you know, he's not making that point at all. He's just saying apparently there are some who that has been their experience. And if that's where someone is, I'm not saying pray about that. God's got to do some business with them. You let God do business with them. But if it's a sin that doesn't lead to death, yeah, pray and and God God will restore them. Does that make sense? So the sin of substance abuse would be one that would lead to death. Good, I suppose. Good. Yeah, I mean, and and again, like I said, you can believe to what you want about that. I'm just trying to I'm just trying to match scripture with scripture, and and there is that 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 instruction from Paul to the church in Corinth that has always been bothersome. Hmm. But, and again, what it tells me is I, I need to just make sure I'm loving God and loving people and remaining in Christ, and I'm okay. <laughs> Whatever happens, I'm okay. Um, verse 18, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe, uh, and the evil one cannot harm him. And again, the one we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. He's not talking about when we sin. He's talking about someone who's living a habitual, unrepentant sin lifestyle. And anybody who's living in a habitual, sinful, unrepentant lifestyle, they cannot be born of God. And the one who was born of God will keep him safe because the evil one cannot harm him. Here's the thing about the devil. And and I've I've had this question asked a lot. Can a Christian be possessed? No. A Christian can be harassed but not possessed. uh, Because the evil one cannot harm him there's nothing, there's nothing that can touch us from the evil one that doesn't go across God's desk first. See the book of Job. And God will put parameters around the evil one and what the evil one is allowed to do. And he can't harass us. Jesus said, Take heart. In this world you have trouble, but I've overcome the world. You're going to be harassed. Our wrestle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and powers, right? And we it's a wrestle, it's a fight. And so we'll be harassed. Don't let it surprise you. But you will not be overcome by the evil one. And there's never, ever, ever any cross follower who's ever been possessed. Because the devil's a defeated foe. And if you're in Christ, the devil can't get into him. But you can be harassed. We understand that. We know that we're children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, even in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. I don't know how John could be any more clear. We know, uh, we know also that the Son of God has come, verse 20, and has given us understanding so that we may know Him. That know means know by experience. He's given us this opportunity to know Christ, not just intellectually, not just through the Word of Scripture, but to know him by experience. And he is true. He's not just truth. He is true. And he is the true God and eternal life. Um, and it is in Jesus that we see the person and character of the Father. You want to know what the Father's like? Just look at the Son. He is the true God and eternal life. The son is the greatest revelation of God the father. And then John has this one ending sentence. Mm -hmm. Dear children. I mean, that's how he addresses everybody, right? Because he's super old. Everybody's a child to him. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. (laughs) Doesn't that sound weird? Like, it sounds random. Like, why, why do you end like that? It should be, hey, I love you. I'm proud of you. Keep up the good work. I'm out. It, it's just, it's... Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Why would he just end with, hey, by the way, keep yourselves from idols? It's like a PS. It's like a PS? You're old, brevity. You're old, he <laughs> doesn't... No. The greatest... Sin in the Old Testament that God leveled the most judgment against is idolatry. That's the one thing that God will. I mean, have no other gods before me. Don't make yourself a graven image. God, God levels the most judgment against his people. Against the sin of idolatry more than anything else. So it's really, really a big deal to God. His, John's whole purpose of this letter is two things. What is it? Love God, love love, love God and love a, at the highest level. And you'll show love for each other by loving God, and you'll show love to God by loving others. Have, have no other thing higher than your love for God and your love for others. What is idolatry? Loving other things and putting other things ahead of God. And so it's actually quite brilliant. It's actually quite brilliant that he would end with keep yourselves from idols because he knows anything that we idolize is going to take the place of Christ and get in the way of each other. And he's gone through such pains to say, be obedient, love God, love people. And so at the end of this, he says, the best thing I can, like if I can get to the root of this, the root that will keep you loving God, loving people, it's idolatry. Keep yourselves from idols. Anything that is equal to God. He said, I want you to protect your relationship with the Father. The best way you love each other is to love God. That's where it starts. And the best thing you can do to protect yourself and your relationship with God is don't give yourself to idolatry. So we have to ask ourselves, what is idolatry? We fall victim to this all the time. There's the idol of self. And the idol of self is the overindulgence in pleasure, the overindulgence with our appearance, the overindulgence with food, drink, leisure, laziness. You want to know that the, the, this generation's greatest um, symbol of overindulgence is social media. Because mm-hmm. it's all indulging my image. Social media has everything to do with my image. Right? Mm-hmm. And so he's saying keep yourselves from this. There's the overindulgence, or there's the idol of wealth. Hoarding wealth. Greed, stinginess, debt. It's because we've, we've, we've made wealth an idol. There's the, old, the, the idol of other people. Where important people in our lives take precedence over our relationship with Christ. And, and, and so it's really quite brilliant that he would say keep yourself from idols because it's Timeless. And he's saying the best way you can protect your relationship with the Father is be weary, be leery, be <clears> mindful, <throat> be watchful of all these other things in your world that start creeping up on God's position. When you're, when you're careful of that, you make sure that doesn't happen. Your relationship with God's going to be all right and your relationship with other people going to be all right. And that's how he ends. First John five. Yep. So any comments, cries, shouts about rage? This is a brilliant Bible I have. By the way, <laughs> it doesn't quite end that way. No. It's, it says my children keep away from anything that might take God's place in your heart. Well, there you go. Right. Which is a great, a great definition it of idolatry. To get the there subject. you go. There you go. That's a great definition of idolatry. Thank you. Some that takes God's place in your heart, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. The last time. Yeah. Loud yeah. Well, I have a Carl quote